Would you pray with me as we open up God's word together? Our dear Jesus, we come from all different places this morning, from all different experiences this week, but we all come with one thing in common. We need you. So would you open up our minds, enliven our hearts, allow us to hear what you have to say to us today. We claim each and every person here as yours, your daughter and son, and ask that you would speak. In the name of Jesus, amen. I read something that I have to share with you. It's a truly terrible thing, though. It's a terrible experiment that took place. In the 1950s, the late John Hopkins researcher, Dr. Kurt Riker, he decided that he was going to do an experiment on domesticated and wild rats. Now, I learned after first service that some of you have treasured pet rats. This in no way endorses this behavior. Public service announcement, your treasured pet rats are really precious to God and to you, and these things should not be repeated. What year did this take place? The 1950s. I continue. He had domesticated and wild rats, and he wanted to see how long they would swim and keep themselves alive. So he had jars with water, and he dropped in the domesticated rats, and he calculated how long they would swim until perishing. And he expected that the wild rats would be able to last longer than the domesticated rats. How many of you would agree with that? That would be your first thought, right? These ones are tough, they're buff, they're bigger than the domesticated rats. They look like they would last longer. They've not depended on anyone else. They fended for themselves. They even resisted human handling. So of course, these ones would be the strong ones. But when he placed the wild rats into the jars, they went quickly. The domesticated rats could last all the way up to 15 minutes, but the wild rats, some of them only lasted for a minute. He said this, hello, Fievel. Next, uh, the situation of these rats scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. It is rather one of what? Hopelessness, he wrote. The rats are in a situation against which they have no defense. They seem to literally give up. So he was wondering what would cause the domesticated rats to last longer. So he tweaked the experiment a little bit, as scientists often do, and he instead placed the domesticated rats in the water, let them swim around, and he said that they were often, you can read his notes, he, they were touching up against the water and swimming down below with their noses against the sides of the glass, trying to see if they could find a way out. But when it looked like they were exhausted and that, like they were about to pass out, he reached in, lifted them out, pet them, let them catch their breath, and then put them back in the water. This was the tweak. What would happen if he took them out and then put them back in? How long do you think the rat could swim after that? He had rats, he calculated the time that would swim between 60 and 80 hours. 
60 to 80 hours. Now keep in mind, they had done 15 minutes before and the, the wild rats had only done some of them a minute. But with the hope of rescue, they were able to go 60 to 80 hours. He says this, he goes on in his notes, after elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. Now, if this is the effect on a rat, the idea that someone is there, that I'm not alone in this, that there is the possibility of rescue, then how much more do we count on hope to allow us to just keep swimming? You see, the domesticated rats had something of an advantage over the wild rats. They had learned that there was help outside of themselves. They had learned that someone would come with food, that someone would come with nurture, that someone would come to show them care. And so even though they weren't as strong or as tough or as vicious or self-dependent as the wild rats, they actually lasted longer. This is an amazing research, even though I do not endorse or condone this kind of behavior. They realized, these rats, that intervention was possible. When rats learned that they weren't doomed, that the situation wasn't lost, that a helping hand might reach in to help them, they did not give up. And I want to remind you today that intervention has happened and intervention will happen in your life and situation. We are on the brink of Thanksgiving this Thursday and so we give our hearts in full gratitude to God who rescued us. We are on the brink of the Advent, which is the celebration of a God who came, a God who rescued. And then we also, as Adventists, believe that there is a God who is coming. So you have hope today and you have hope for the future. So I remind you today that our hope is in Christ, that the divine rescue has come and will come. So I turn today to a passage that is familiar to some of you. It was on your graduation cards and maybe around a graduation picture frame or maybe it's on a poster on your wall or emblazoned on your Bible. But I turn to these words in Philippians 4 starting in verse 10, because I believe that it's important for us in the time in which we live to remember that a rescue has come and a rescuer is coming. Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 10, we read together from this letter from the Apostle Paul in which he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be content when I'm well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Notice these words of Paul that he writes. These are not the words of someone at the top of their game. These are not the words in a letter written by someone who has just gotten their dream job or landed their dream position, their degree, their relationship. This is a 60-plus-year-old Jewish missionary chained to a Roman guard. Paul is under house arrest, and he doesn't know if tomorrow he'll be executed, if he'll be demanded to show up in court, or if he'll be released. Though Paul is without the comforts of home and the privileges of privacy, he is joyful. He has no idea what will happen in the future, and he is content. Wow, this term content was used by Stoic philosophers of Paul's time, and it meant self-sufficient. In their view, this characteristic was the most valuable attribute of a wise person. Indeed, just like these Stoic philosophers, Paul does consider, does not consider physical deprivation or unmitigated disaster, nor physical comfort a sign of success. But unlike the Stoic philosophers, Paul does not find the resources for this attitude within himself. Instead, he says, they reside in the Lord through whom he can face all things. For Paul, contentment doesn't come from self-sufficiency like the Stoic philosophers. It comes in dependence that he is dependent on Jesus Christ, and even, as verse 14 shows, interdependence on the body of Christ. To be content is to let Christ be enough, no matter what the circumstance. To let Christ be enough in each and everything that you are facing right now. Whether you're stressed or you're relaxed, whether you're single or married, with children or longing for them, healthy or sick, professional success or not, employed or unemployed, or even well-fed or hungry. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it would be impossible for him to picture that someone could be hungry and yet content because the most basic of needs need to be met in order for us to have that kind of peace and self-actualization. But Paul says, I'm not even well-fed, and yet I'm content because I have Jesus. To be content is to have peace, total and absolute, that is not dependent on the external situation. When you come to the end of your own strength, then you can realize the strength of Christ is enough. When you come to the end of what you have to give, then what is given is a gift. In verse 11, Paul says, I have learned to be content. And I really love this verse. I have learned. Contentment is a learned behavior, an attitude, a posture, a mindset. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come. Some of you need to hear these words as if Jesus is speaking them exactly to you right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and humble of heart. The teacher's teachings were called the yoke. And so he said, you come along beside me and we'll walk together and I'll teach you my ways. Luke chapter six, Jesus says, why do you call out to me, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? He says, come, put it into practice, come alongside me, and I, just like the bigger oxen, will teach the younger oxen. They yoke them together so that they can learn how to plow. Jesus says, it is a long obedience that you're called to, this life of Christ, this life of discipleship. So yoke yourself to me, and we'll walk along, and you will learn the way of love. Walk along, and you'll learn the way of contentment. Because you see, you think it depends on the outside. You think it depends on having this or having that or this being your circumstance, but that has nothing to do with it. It's me, Jesus says. Learn my way. Walk with me. I will teach you this. And so Jesus invites us to learn a way that is not naturally the way that we would be because we are not naturally those who live content. It's a journey that takes practice and it takes trust. When you do this, Jesus says, you're like someone who builds their house on a rock. You dig down deep and you find the rock, the foundation, and you build your house in that place. And then it says, when the floods struck, when the torrent overwhelms, when the rains come down, the house can stand because the house is on the rock. Notice the text says, when it struck. It doesn't matter what foundation you have, hard times will come. If you're building it on the sand or if you're building on the rock, it's still when the storm comes. If you hear this, he says, but don't put it into practice, you have no foundation and your house collapses. But just because we accept Jesus Christ as our savior does not exempt us from struggle, from pain, or from heartache. Someone here today needs to hear that your pain is not evidence of the presence of God in your life, that the struggle doesn't mean that you are unloved. Today, God says to you, when the foundation, when the foundation is tested by the storm, that your life will still stand because you are built on Jesus Christ. The rock foundation doesn't take away the storm, but it does change how you go through the storm. The rock changes how you handle stress. It changes how you speak to others. It changes how you deal with encroaching feelings because humans face hopelessness and sadness and despair. It's pretty basic, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Putting into practice God's ways day after day builds our life on a solid foundation. We cannot change the crisis, but the crisis does reveal the foundation. And so God is able to do what we can't do on our own. I know, Paul says, need, and I know plenty. I know well-fed, and I know hungry. I know stress, and I know peace. And I've learned the secret of contentment in all of these circumstances. I can do all things, all things through Jesus Christ. 
I have found this to be true in my own life. Jesus is enough. When Paul says this, he means when your family is close and connected or when your family is fighting and separated, I can do all things through Christ. When you sit around the Thanksgiving table this week and you believe things very differently and see the world very differently than those that are biologically closest to you, you say, I can do all things through Christ. When you got in bill after bill this week and you are not sure if you can pay all of them or when you have more than enough, you can do all things through Christ. When you have freedom and you feel in complete control or when you feel like you are powerless and you are not able to control your destiny, I can do all things through Christ. Rather than a pep talk about you can do it or pursue your success or like we do at graduations, the trajectory of your life will be constantly improving. Paul says, actually these words that are of deep trust in weakness. In order for you to get the point of what he's saying, you must remember his circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wasn't the rallying cry of the one who had it all together. It was the cry of one who had found that even at his lowest, that Christ was enough. You have to realize, Paul says, it's not like the Stoics say, it's not like you have to have your own self-sufficiency. Instead, he says, Jesus, Jesus gives you strength beyond what you have on your own. Swedish hymnist Lena Sandelberg, Sandelberg served with her father in evangelistic ministry and they went all over the world to different places. But one time in a storm, he was knocked overboard and they were unable to find him in time. So he passed away. And she found herself in need of deep comfort that only God could supply. And she wrote these words that are sung still by Christians around the world. Day by day, and with each passing moment. Strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in the Father's wise bestowment. I've no cause for worry or for fear. In times of conflict and defeat, we are forced to confess that we need a source of strength beyond ourselves. Some of you are exactly there. We can rejoice that we have an always available source of strength in the inexhaustible grace of God, that Jesus holds all the fullness of all the Godhead for you, that the very same power that rose, rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's the kind of power, the inexhaustible grace of God. When God allows a burden, God always gives the grace to bear it, she said after writing that hymn. We tend to think of growth periods of our lives as interruptions to normal. But what if the highs were attributed to Christ and what if the lows were attributed to Christ as well? What if the all things of your life that God can give you strength to face all things encompass the peaks as well as the valleys? That God was able to give you the strength to, when you're in pain, walk across the room 
as much as God gives you strength to train for your marathon as you do laps around us, that Christ's strength alone gives you each and everything. How do we pray without ceasing? How do we learn to abide in Christ? How do we live with this awareness that in him we live and move and have our being? We connect everything we do with Christ. For today, I stand here speaking because of Christ. I stand here breathing because of Jesus Christ. I can read because of Jesus. I can love because of Jesus. I can love my family, my husband. I can love each of you because I was first loved. And that very love is what translates into each of our lives. Jesus says, you abide in me in John 15, five. If you remain in me, you will bear fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. I can do all things, all things, through Christ who gives me strength. It's not, oh God, here's the hard parts and I'm gonna do all the rest, I can take care of this part. He says, I want to do all of it. Not, you take, you handle this part, right? And I'll take care of this. This one is too hard for me, but I can handle all the rest. But everything, anything, the decisions that you're making, the relationships that you have, the choices of when and how to serve and love. This is a position of dependence and we don't remain in it very easily, but we are called to learn it. So we know that the author of this letter, the one who wrote these very words, in 48 to 51 AD, Paul plants this church in Philippi. In 62 AD, he receives their gifts from Epaphroditus and he says, it's good of you that you shared in my trouble, that you gave me this great gift. And then in 64 AD, Paul is martyred in Rome. He didn't know what would happen two years after this letter. But I believe he still died saying, in all things, Christ gives me strength. This is the guy writing that he knows the secret to contentment. It's not in getting enough, it's not in having the perfect relationships or in passing and acing the test, it's not even in the perfect 401k. It is in Christ. Hope is found in Christ. Resilience is found in Christ. It comes from trusting God so deeply that Jesus is enough. So grace to you if you find yourself being human in how you practice this, because it is a lifelong journey. And he says, come, learn from me. You'll find rest for your heart as you do, because you're learning from the one who walks along. The storms will come, and the storms do come, but I want you to keep learning my way, and there's grace enough for the journey. Can you hear Paul imploring us today? to live the ways of Christ, to walk with Jesus so that he can meet our every need, that our hope would be in Jesus Christ alone. Some of you know Elder Deb Stottlemyre. She was just voted this morning as our co-head elder going into the next term. Elder Corey Knowlton and Deb Stottlemyre are two co-head elders, uh, and we have great gratitude for the one who served in this capacity for all of these other years. Elder Katura Reed is a great blessing to this congregation, friends. She served for the last five years. You're a great gift. You are a great gift. 
So as we just nominated these new leaders and they'll start serving January 1, uh, Elder Deb and I were having this conversation this morning. And if you ever make it to first service, you'll see that beside her, in between her and her mom, Donna, is a little white doggy. And the little white dog's name is Hope. Hope. And you won't hear her during the service because she's a very good little, little dog. She uh, was Craig's support dog. And she is so good. She's so calm. So imagine my surprise this morning as I was talking with her and Hope was just... She kept making that sound. She just kept making that sound. She just kept doing this. And I said, Hope refuses to be ignored today. And then I thought, that's so true. It makes me laugh every time. Whenever I say her name, I'm like, Hope refuses to be ignored. Hope keeps coming to you again, friends. In the text that you got, in the call that, that you received, in the friend who comes by to hug you, hope refuses to be ignored. And when you feel like you're exhausted and you just can't keep swimming, hope comes along, refusing to be quiet, and says, I'm, I'm gonna keep persisting, right? That's why I love verse 14 here. This verse 14, when Paul says this, and I think it's such a powerful verse, a little, little verse, but so powerful. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. You see, Paul knew that he would make it if they didn't renew their concern for him. If they didn't send a gift, he would still be okay. Even though he was dependent on what others gave him, he knew he would still be okay. And yet, he said, it was good of you to share in my troubles. It was good of you to reach out and to come. My prayer today is that you would remember that you are rescued, that there has been a divine intervention, and that this will give you courage as you await the ultimate rescue. Even now, I pray that God would help you and restore your courage and renew you because our resilience is in our dependence. And that's not the same as what the world teaches, but our resilience is in our dependence and our hope, our enduring hope is in Jesus Christ. As our praise team comes forward, I want us to sing this song because this song is so powerful and it's one that I have sung as an anthem through many, many seasons through many challenges um, and I know that you have too it says in Christ alone alone nothing else in Christ alone my hope is found not in circumstances not in resources not in people but in Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. I invite you to stand at this moment in the love of Christ. And perhaps in this moment, more of your life needs to come under the banner of all things. The highs and the lows, the peaks and the valleys are all things. 
So I invite you to reflect on what you're all that you can do through Christ is today and to surrender that to him.